Welcome to PBC Talks. If you would like to find out more information, please visit pbc.org.uk. Good morning. My name, for anyone who doesn't know, is Eunice. He said that. Been a member here for a very long time, and I used to be part of the leadership team. Shall we? Shall we pray? Father, it says in your word that your word is powerful, like a double-edged sword. It's a lamp to our feet. It's a hammer, it can break things. It's like water. It waters the earth beneath and makes it flourish. And you promise that your word never returns to you empty without having accomplished what you sent it to do. And so Father, we hold you to that promise this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Can you hear me okay? I am going to begin by mentioning a word which many, and I would say probably mostly women in this church, do not want to hear. It starts with C. Christmas? (laughs) If you've got kids, you know what it's like. You listen out for what they most want in all the world. And you save up and you secretly go out when their minds are occupied elsewhere and you buy it. And it's probably huge. And it's the biggest wrapping challenge you've ever faced in your life. And then it's the biggest hiding challenge you've ever faced in your life. And you can't, you try to imagine what it's going to be like on Christmas morning when they tear the wrapping off and they open it and they see what you've bought and it's their heart's desire and they'll love you forever. And then what does the kid do? It plays with the box. How do you feel when that happens? Can you imagine? At the very least of it, you're deflated, aren't you? That is not what you had in mind. Worse still, I don't know if you've ever been in the position where a grown-up who really ought to know better than this doesn't like what you've bought for them and sort of rather rudely slings it back at you. Ever happened to you? It's happened to me. And I tell you what, it doesn't, it's not nice, is it? It's not nice. It, it, it hurts your love gesture has been spurned. I'm going to park that. Look at something a bit, a bit nicer. Who remembers this? The Suits actress marries the son of the future king. Isn't that, isn't that an amazing picture? Here we have the future king welcoming a foreign commoner. She's being welcomed into the royal family with actually a lovely smile and and an arm, and he conducts her up the aisle. Now, she's got no title of her own. She's got no personal claim 
to be welcomed like that into a family like that. It's pure grace on his part. And why? Because his son loves her. Got another picture. I wonder if you know who the gentlemen are on the right-hand side there. Anybody know the name? Didn't think you would. Anybody seen the film The Railway Man that tells their story? Few have. The, the gentleman on the left in the red shirt, he is, he is Eric Lomax. He fought in the British Army during the Second World War. He was captured by the Japanese. He was forced to help build the Burma Railway, and that was no fun. But the Japanese accused him of doing something he hadn't done, but they wouldn't believe him, and he was tortured for a very long time. It left him with lasting physical and emotional scars, which really destroyed his life for a number of years after the war ended. And this is him meeting the guy who tortured him, one of the team who tortured him. And after some years of thinking about it, his torturer had accepted that what he did was wrong. And he asked for forgiveness. And you know what? Eric Lomax gave it to him. He forgave him, and they became friends for the rest of their lives. Just think about it. That is grace in action. Shall we turn to our Bibles? And if you've got it, I don't care in what form, I'd really appreciate it if you'd keep it open, because although it's on the screen now, it's not going to stay there. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 9. David, that's King David, asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant? that you should notice a dead dog like me. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops 
so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. On the face of it, this is a story about three historical Old Testament figures, King David, Jonathan, and Mephibosheth. But actually what it is as well is an Old Testament picture of God's grace towards us in Jesus. Because as we have discovered in our series this term, from Genesis to eternity, there only ever was and there only ever is one plan of salvation. And his name is... Jesus. Let's say that again. His name is Jesus. Jesus. It's called the Jesus plan. Although Jesus is never mentioned by name in the Old Testament, he is there throughout. It's like... God has left road signs in the Old Testament pointing us to him so that when he came in the flesh, we would recognize him. Quick reminder now, we're going to skim through like nobody's business, of the Old Testament signs that we've looked at in this series so far, but there are ever so many more in the Old Testament. First of all, Adam and Eve show us man's predicament, our fall into disobedience and sin. There is no way back into God's holy presence. Abraham then discovers that only the sacrifice of a loved one and only son can really satisfy God's anger at man's sin. But God in his mercy intervenes, provides a sacrificial ram himself, so that Isaac, the son, can live. Then we have the journey from slavery out into freedom. God speaks to his people through Moses, brings them out of Egypt, and they are saved from death in Egypt by the blood of a lamb on the doorposts. Then in the prophet Isaiah, we read about the suffering servant who will take God's people's sin, their suffering, and their shame upon himself. And I find this very amazing. In Psalm 22, we have, to all intents and purposes, the torment, the rejection of the cross, perfectly described hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came to quote it on the cross. And the whole series held together by this theme of the scarlet thread, that blood-red cord that Rahab the prostitute dangled out of her window 
while she trusted Israel's God and Israel's warriors to respect what the thread meant and give her life. And that scarlet thread reminds us of the Jesus plan, running all the way through scripture, old and new, and then into us. So, what does this story of King David and poor Meshibatha, I wish he was called Bert, I, I can't tell you how much I wish he was called Bert, um, add to our understanding of the Jesus plan? Well, it's a picture of God's grace. You see, Mephibosheth lived around about 3,000 years ago. That's a very long time. Life and politics were very brutal. Nothing new there then, you're going to say. But you see, today's daggers are verbal. In those days, the knives were real. And it was terminal. It was the way things were, and losers lost. Mephibosheth is the grandson of Israel's first king, Saul. He's the son of Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan was Saul's presumed heir. And when King David, or not then King David, when David and Jonathan were at Saul's court together, they had formed a really close bond. They were the very best of friends. Now, when Mephibosheth was five, he had a really bad day. At one and the same time, he learns his grandfather has been killed in battle with the Philistines. His father, Jonathan, has been killed in battle with the Philistines. Everything, therefore, changes in his life. The kingdom's future is up for grabs. His future is up for grabs. His nurse thinks it's necessary to run away. She was probably right. She picks the lad up. She runs to flee with him as fast as possible. And accidentally, she drops him. And his feet never recovered from the injuries that he received on that occasion. And he is lamed for life in both feet. And that, if you noticed as we read our reading, becomes his label. Twice in one short chapter, how does it describe him? He was lame in both feet. Lame was who he was. And standing had become a problem. Look, you've got to feel sorry for this guy, don't you? His closest family gone, his security gone, his fitness gone, his status gone, his wealth has gone. The prospect of ever being king himself looks like it's gone. And he's just a young, vulnerable bystander. And the vicious politics of regime change are raging round him. Maybe he really believed it when he said in verse 8 of our reading, when he's lying prostrate in front of King David, and he calls himself a dead dog. And it's true, this young man now had a target on his back. As a descendant of Saul's, you see, he was a potential rival to the new king. Even lame, he could be a figurehead leader. So you get rid of him. That's politics. You clean house. 
And if you think, gosh, that's cruel, I want to remind you that was 3,000 years ago. Only 500 years ago in this country, Bloody Mary, Mary I, do you remember her? You remember teenage girl, Lady Jane Grey, the Six Days Queen? Mary had her head chopped off in the end. Why? She was a political rival. For a brief space, one of Mephibosheth's uncles uh, has a go at being king, but he gets murdered. And then David, who's already king to la uh, of land to the south, uh, a delegation goes to him and invites him to become king of the north as well. So this is real regime change now. And you would imagine that Mephibosheth's goose was well and truly cooked. Because, you see, everybody knew about David. He'd been anointed when just a lad by the famous prophet Samuel as Israel's future king. He was a formidable warrior. As a teenager, he killed Goliath when nobody else could. And the people had adored him for his prowess in battle. And when the job demanded, which it often did, he could be well and truly ruthless. He's not a man without fault, but he is someone who sincerely loved and worshipped God. Saul, if you remember, had been mad with jealousy of him and fear of him and wanted him dead. Whereas Jonathan, Saul's son, had been his best buddy. So you can imagine how confused Mephibosheth must have been at this point. Was David likely to behave towards him like Jonathan's friend or like Saul's worst enemy? He can't have known. David is the new king. There's a new family in charge. And Mephibosheth quite literally cannot stand before David because he's lame. And he's a perfect illustration, surely, of our weakness and our helplessness before an almighty and a holy God. We can't stand either. No one can. We are just not good enough or holy enough to stand in the presence of such a king. Now, however well and respectably we may think we have led our lives, however good or kind or generous or moral we may have tried to be, or even if we know we haven't been those things, whatever excuses we may have made for our anger, our unforgiveness, our failures, our moral failures, to justify or try to justify in our own minds what we've done, the Bible, Old Testament and New are agreed. This is the unvarnished truth about us. In Genesis, God says, every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. The prophet Jeremiah says, 
the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. We deceive ourselves. In Romans 3, Paul says, all, that's a very all-encompassing word, don't you think? All, no exceptions, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can never reach God's standards in our own strength. And what's more, there's a consequence to that. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve, judgment and death. And certainly that's what Mephibosheth must have been expecting as David cleaned house. Mid-1980s hadn't been coming to this church long. I remember sitting, ooh, somewhere round about Peggy, maybe a little bit further back where she is now. And I heard Roger Martin, our minister, preach something on these lines. These scriptures would be involved, I'm sure. It was probably the first time I'd been confronted with that truth that all have sinned and fallen short. And you know what? In my spiritual state at that time, I didn't believe it. This little worm in my brain was going around saying, that's not you. You've led such a goody, goody little life. You never had the chance to do anything naughty. You were an only child. You know, you had no one to help you out when you wanted to be bad. And you were, you know, as moral as many people, and you were this and you were that. And I comforted myself that that scripture didn't apply to me. And then as soon as I'd thought that thought, I think the Holy Spirit jumped in. Can't attribute it to anything else. Because the Holy Spirit suddenly said, yeah, but look at yourself on the inside. And you know what? I looked. And the more I looked, the less I liked what was there. Because you see, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you know what? Since that day, my life has got better because Jesus came in. Because, like Mephibosheth, we all need grace. And Mephibosheth received from David what the practices of his time said he didn't deserve and he couldn't possibly earn. And that's the definition of grace. Grace is receiving mercy. It's receiving forgiveness. It's receiving blessings that we don't deserve and couldn't earn. It's being forgiven, like that Japanese torturer, for our wrongdoing and someone else taking the punishment we deserve. Like Eric Lomax, he was innocent. And this is fairly hackneyed, but it's a good definition, a memorable one of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. And you know, it was risky for David to let Mephibosheth live. The rules said, kill him off. He's a danger to you. But David accepted the risk. And you know what? God accepted the risk with me. Wasn't that brave of him? 
What did grace look like for Mephibosheth? Well, David sends for him. I imagine that journey must have been like the journey in the tumbrel to the French revolutionary guillotine, honestly. I'm sure that's what he thought he was expecting. But the first thing David says to him is, don't be afraid. And then he lets Mephibosheth live. So he gives him life, but not just life. He gives him riches. Verse 7, he restores to him all the property that had been Saul's and was now David's by conquest. All his lands, all his property, all his servants. And in verses 9 and 10, he sets all those servants to work the land to give Mephibosheth an income. So not just life, not just riches, more than that, he gives him status. He says, verse 7, you will always eat at my table. That, the scripture tells us, gives Mephibosheth the same status as the king's own sons. He's no longer a dead dog. He's a son. And David knew when he did this that this is just what God would do. He wrote about it in Psalm 23. You know it very well. You prepare a table before me, said, in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. And Mephibosheth's cup, surely at this point, should have been running over. You would expect him to be rejoicing. And the amazing thing is that this Old Testament picture of David's grace to Mephibosheth looks just like God's grace to each of us in Jesus. Because what we receive at his hands is not death that our sin deserves, but life and mercy. In Romans 6, it says... Um, as we first heard, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, it goes on to say, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Good news? Say if you are men's, I feel a bit Southern Baptist at the moment. No, I don't really. Northwestern Baptist, maybe. So, life, not death. Not poverty, but riches, the riches of his grace. In Ephesians 1, in him, Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Not just mingy grace, it's lavished grace. And thirdly, we are not dead dogs. That's good news. We are children of the king. In John 1, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Mephibosheth couldn't stand before his new king, just like we cannot stand in our own strength before our heavenly king. Mephibosheth did not earn the riches he received, and neither can we. But we receive them as God's gift because of Jesus. Mephibosheth did not deserve 
a seat at the table of his king, and nor do we. But we, like him, are welcomed as sons. Our cups are running over. You've got to ask, where did this grace that David showed him come from? I think the answer's easy. It came from, a love, it came from love and a covenant promise. You see, David did not know Mephibosheth personally, but he had known and loved his father, Jonathan. And years before, when they were at court together, David and Jonathan made a covenant with each other, a solemn promise that neither of them would break. Jonathan said he would do his best to protect David from the madness of Saul. And in return, David promised in 1 Samuel 20 to show Jonathan and his family unfailing kindness. What kind of kindness? Well, kindness like the Lord's kindness and never to cut off kindness from Jonathan's family. So by the time we get to 2 Samuel 9, where we began, David, remembering that covenant promise, asked, is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? David saved Mephibosheth because of his covenant of love with Jonathan. We are also beneficiaries of a covenant we have not made ourselves. Because in Jeremiah 31, God promised to forgive his people's sin, and instead of writing his law on blocks of stone like the Ten Commandments, he would write it instead in their hearts. And he kept that promise by sending Jesus, his one and only son, to be the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, pay for it by his own death. Jesus is the fulfillment and embodiment of that covenant. And in Matthew 26, when Jesus shares the Passover meal, that last meal with his disciples, he lifts the cup of wine, doesn't he? And he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the Jesus grace that we see signposted throughout the Old Testament. Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, Psalm 22, Rahab, now Mephibosheth. But of course, the picture is of Jesus. Gifts, as we saw at the beginning, can be misused or rejected as well as accepted. And the challenge to us is that we can so easily turn up our noses at grace. Offering grace was a real risk for David. And if I can put it this way, it's a risk for God. Grace is such a costly gift to turn down and how much we must hurt God when we do. 
And the sad thing is that after years at David's table, Mephibosheth thought he saw a chance to get hold of the crown for himself. And he chose to stop relying on David's grace and he followed his own way. He flung that grace back in David's face. And as life's circumstances go up and down, can't you recognize sometimes the temptation to us to do the same thing? To say, God, you're not working for me. My life's not happy. It should be. It's not. So I'm going to turn my back because I'm grumpy with you. I'm upset with you. You've let me down. We can throw it back in his face completely. Or you know what? We can just sort of cool down a bit. Just play with the box. The outward trappings, coming to church, doing the odd Christian-looking thing, but never really exploring the fullness of God's grace and its riches. How did David respond to this last provocation? Well, you might have been tempted, I might have been tempted to go in and finish the job, but he didn't because, you know what, he remembered his love and his covenant with Jonathan and he still let Mephibosheth live. That's grace. But they didn't share a table anymore. God's grace is precious and costly. Let's take care we never throw it back. Because of Jesus, we can stand despite our lameness, forgiven in the most holy place. Because of Jesus, we can enjoy to the full the riches of his grace. Because of Jesus, we can take our place, our seat at the royal table as co-heirs with Christ. You've got your feet under God's table. That's amazing. So I just want to leave us with this one question. How are we going to respond? Please, let's open the box and see what's inside. Thanks for listening to this week's talk. Join us next week for another inspirational message.